first of all, thank you for joining me on the Football CFB podcast, Jonathan. Uh, thank you, Colin, for the invite, really. <laughs> You're known by many as, a, as obviously a player in Scotland with Celtic and obviously down south with Preston, Coventry and Bradford, among many others. Um, what is it you're up to now, for people that don't know? Um, I'm currently the goalkeeping coach at Preston North End. Um, been there for probably about eight months now, working under um, Alex Neil, um, obviously uh, formerly of Hamilton and Norwich. And um, I've um, thoroughly enjoyed the season that I've having at Preston so far. In terms of Alex Neil, obviously he's well known in Scotland, having been the Hamilton captain and, and, and obviously doing really well with them as a manager and also doing well, it has to be said, with Norwich um, down south. What's he like as a, as, as a coach? Is he very hands-on in the training field? Yeah, Alex, is uh, he's meticulous. Um, his details are impeccable. Um, and he's got probably um, a rare ability that uh, he can actually transform what he sees um, you know, off the field, um, up to the training field. And, um, you know, I've really enjoyed working with him. Um, he worked very hard and, and he expects the rest of the staff to be diligent as well. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's the reason he's been successful in his career so far. In terms of yourself, Jonathan, on the training pitch every day as a goalkeeping coach, obviously you're working with the keepers. What does your role involve that us as fans maybe aren't aware of? Um, it, it depends really. I, I have to, you know, I have to be adjustable to the to really what is wanted by the manager. Um, you know, under under different managers, you 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 your demands are slightly different. Um, you know, obviously, um, I have to be fully aware of, of the opposition's threats. Um, I spend a lot of time analysing the goals that that are scored by the opposition. Um, you know, this is the, that's the kind of information that I need to pass on to you know the goalkeepers that, that I work with at the moment. It's Declan Rudd, and um, you know, and 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 because of that, your your, ses- your sessions during the week have got to be have the same kind of detail um, to prepare your goalkeeper for that. Um, you know, he's he's got to he's got to almost expect the unexpected. Um, I also I think. Uh, Key part of my role is is to support um, the other coaches and you know um, and just make sure that that um, you know my experience help helps them. Um, you know, I've gained quite a lot over the last fifteen years as a coach. You mentioned the experience you've gained, and obviously one of the things that makes goalkeeper such a hard position is the fact that if a centre midfielder makes a mistake, the chances are it might not lead to a goal. Whereas if a goalkeeper does more more likely than not, it does lead to a goal. Is it a big part of your role then as a goalkeeping coach, obviously picking up the boys whenever they make a mistake? Uh, yeah, I think confidence. You know, I have, you know, my own experience as a goalkeeper, confidence is a, a key part of that. I think also um, being very, very steady um, and consistent. Um, when you get to this level, I say, I'd say like Championship, and obviously I spent three years previously working with Ben Foster in the Premier League. Um, you, you know, they. You, there's really an expectation that there's certain things uh, technically in the game that, that, that a goalkeeper should be capable of. Um, the next level for a goalkeeper um, up beyond consistency is is being brilliant and making saves, um, uh, you know, at big times in the games. Um, you know, organisation, I think that's key. That's what, probably one of my strengths um, was was the organisation from, from, from behind the team and making sure my communication was at a high level. And also that my distances of support um, to that back four, 
you know, or what they needed, so that they there were there were no grey areas in respect of um, you know what what was expected of me. What are the hopes for Preston this season and in the next few years ahead? Well, goodness me, this season, um, you know, if we could stay in the, the top six um, and you know, give ourselves a shot, a shot at the Premier League, um, that, I think that's every Preston uh, supporter's dream. Um, you know, they've made the playoffs uh, probably about 14 or 15 years ago, just after I left as a player, actually, and, and, and had a, um, a good run at it. Um, so from, from my sort of personal perspective, it would be to, um, you know, as I said, support Alex and, and see if we can... Get, um, what you would probably call an unfashionable, but obviously one of the uh, the longest serving teams, uh, Preston North End into the Premier League. Scott Sinclair joined the club obviously in the in the January window, and um, obviously a player up in Scotland and even down south with a big reputation. How has he been able to fit in with the players in the dressing room and the club in general? Well, I think that's you know that's part of um, the homework the manager does when we do a start is is to make sure first of all. Um, the personalities um, got to be a fit for the group, and you know, and Scott's um, Scott's a wonderful lad. Um, I think there's an adjustment time um, when when you come from Scottish Champions to the Scottish Premiership into uh, the football Championship. Um, you, there's probably when you play for a big club like Celtic, uh, you genuinely gen- generally get more time on the ball. Um, um, when you when you come down at the championship, it's it's very frenetic. Um, it's I think it's a lot more physical, and therefore there's there's, there's a, a period of adjustment. I mean, Scott's I think it's second or third home game um, came off the right hand side and bent into the top left hand corner, and uh, you know that's that's um, that's certainly something we'll be looking for from Scott over the next um, few weeks going into the last ten games. In terms of yourself, we'll come to your career now. Obviously, your father, Bobby Gold, very well-known in football as well, had some very high-profile jobs in the game too. What was it like growing up with uh, such a football man as, as your father? Goodness me, it was, um, it was, well, it was a good education for a start. Um, you know, my earliest memories uh, um, as a youngster were, were being at Molyneux at, uh, when he was playing for Wolves and uh, the Hawthorns when he was playing for West Brom. Um, luckily, as a manager, you know, got to witness firsthand, um, you know, the crazy gang turning Liverpool over um, in 1988, which was an incredible um, um, atmosphere and experience for a, uh, a club the size of Wimbledon. Um, it, 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 to be honest, it's um, it's been a, it's been a privilege. You know, I'm you know, you're born into the family, and and um, and it's, it, we we are a football family, I suppose, and it's. Um, We've been very lucky that we've um, had these opportunities in football throughout our career. In terms of yourself growing up as a footballer, were you always a goalkeeper or were you ever an outfielder? No, I was an outfielder until I was um, around 20 I changed. That's um, quite late actually. No, I probably would, you know, sorry? I said that's actually quite late, isn't it, to change? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it was a lack of pace to be honest, Callum. Father <laughs> uh, told me um, at the age of twenty. I, I told him at the age of twenty. I said, "Look, I want to be a professional footballer." I was working in the bank at the time, and Dad said, "The only chance you've really got is is in goal. You, you, you know, you've got a good uh, hand-eye coordination." So, uh, my dad and I then spent uh, the next six or seven months at the back of Plough Lane. Um, he helped me, and then um, my first my first uh, real experience as a goalkeeper was working under Peter Shilton. 
Um, at Derby County, I spent nine months sort of doing a, what you would call a late apprenticeship with Peter, and that probably stood me in really good stead going um, going into the rest of my career. In terms of when you work with someone with the stature of Peter Shelton, obviously the most capped England player yeah. of all time, are you just constantly leaning on someone like him for advice? It, do you know what? It, it wasn't just advice. It was it was to see him work um, technically. Um, and he was he was perfection. Uh, even when you, know, you think when I went, I worked with him in 1989, and then he came to Coventry about um, six or seven years later. I think he was at the age of 46 then. And it, it you revered um, his craft as a goalkeeper. And I, I think watching him early and then being able to sort of have a have a, have a reminder of of how important technique is as a goalkeeper. Um, you know, he was, he, 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 his whole week um, leading up to the game was to make sure that um, mentally and technically he was prepared for a game of football. And, you know, I mean, you know played over a hundred times for, for England, uh, probably one of the best goalkeepers the world's seen. And, uh, you know, again, not just a privilege, but I was very fortunate to get that opportunity. In terms of goalkeeping, you talked about the, the, some of the key aspects needed to, to be a goalkeeper there and, and something that always interests me when you watch football on TV not a lot of pundits are goalkeepers and quite a lot of the time goalkeepers can get heavily criticised what are the sort of aspects to goalkeeping that maybe fans and pundits aren't aware of because they've not been goalkeepers themselves? Um, if you put most of the pundits in front of um, in a shooting session and um, and I'm not talking about just a goalkeeping uh, coaches session there. They wouldn't cope with uh, the speed of the ball. Um, and they certainly um, uh, wouldn't cope with um, the diversity of, of what comes at you. Um, you know, I, 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 I do think nowadays um, we probably need a few more goalkeepers as pundits because, um, like you say, they're, they're, they're getting criticised um, week in, week out. And if and if, if I was, as a goalkeeping coach, you know, when I look at um, the goalkeepers I work with now, um, you, you actually, when you have experienced what's in front of them, you look at certain aspects of, of their starting position, whether they're prepared for the shot, you know, all those things can be broken down into very, very small details. But what, what the pundits don't realise is that those details are sometimes milliseconds. Um, you know, and I just think I think there needs to probably a little bit of, uh, less criticism. You know, the obvious mistakes are there. I think there was, you know, there was, was a really poor mistake by um, by a goalkeeper for Liverpool last night, and um, you know, they're, they're the obvious ones. But the ones that I think um, are a little bit more open to conjecture, I think the pundits should probably leave them alone and leave them to the leave it to the experts. <laughs> In terms of coming through, when was the first time? you thought you had a real chance of making as a professional? Because as you mentioned there, you made a positional change quite late on. Um, probably once I'd made my league debut. And um, I, I went to Halifax on trial um, back in 1990. And after about three or four weeks, Jim McCallion, a famous Scotsman, um, he decided that I he thought I was going to be good enough uh, to make the grade, um, and then that's once you make. You know, it's funny. Once you make that professional debut, 
Um, people can never take that away from me. You can always say, oh, I've been a professional footballer, I am a professional footballer. And, and, and funny enough, that, that actual game, um, we was, I think we were 3-1 down to Blackpool at half-time for Halifax. And I remember Jim coming in and he tossed his toys out the pram and basically told uh, the rest of the team that they were ruining my day. Now, to be honest, I think um, going back to punditry, I could have blamed myself for, for one of those three. Um, and then we went from 3-1, we went to 5-3, we turned the whole game on its head. So, you know, at that point, uh, you, a, you, you, you win, you don't give the clean sheet. Um, so that, that's your next stage as a goalkeeper, your first clean sheet. But, you know, you make your debut um, as a pro goalkeeper and it's, um, it's something never, no one can ever take away from you. You mentioned there, you make your debut, you get into the Halifax team, you're playing well, and then after doing well with Halifax, you move on to Coventry. How did that move come about, and what was it like moving clubs for the first time? Yeah, well, actually, um, that there was, there was an in-between there as well, Callum, because to, from Halifax, I went to, to West Brom, and it probably uh, not highlighted that much, but uh, my father was the manager at West Brom, and um, there was a, a goalkeeper called Mel Reese who, um, you know, passed away not long after that. Um, he was really rather poorly, and that was the reason I was pulled into the West Brom squad. Um, and then, and then my father got sacked from West Brom, and Ozzy Ardiles came in, offered me a contract at West Brom, and, and within a few weeks, my father got a Coventry City job, and he turned around to me then and he said, "Look." Um, I'll bring you in as um, a number two to Steve Grzovich, and, and and again, that's you know part of your um, your your apprenticeship, even at the age of 23, I think it was at the time, to work under someone like Oggy, who played 10, 15 years in the top league in in in, in, in the world, probably. Um, that was a, it was an opportunity I wasn't going to turn down. And, you know, when your dad signs you, that's uh, probably quite a leap of faith, but also um, a show of faith, really, because you know as a he was a centre forward and. Um, I know he enjoyed uh, kicking a few goalkeepers, so to sign your own son as a goalkeeper um, must have um, take, taken a little bit of time to think about. Playing under your dad, did that bring more pressure from you, from teammates, in terms of having to perform? Um, because obviously you know what people can be like, so you know you're only getting a game because of X, Y and Z. Yeah, probably, um, but you, you know it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know who your dad is really, or what you do. You whatever environment you go into in any walk of life, you have to earn earn that respect and earn the right to be there. And and uh, you know pretty quickly in in training, I think uh, the Coventry lads see that um, I was good enough. It wasn't as if um, I hadn't played. You know, I played over seventy or eighty games up to that point anyway. And um, and I think the the, the big help. Was probably my um, Premier League debut. We um, we uh, Oggy had, had taken injured on the Saturday morning, and and we were playing Liverpool that afternoon. So to step into a Coventry City team at home to Liverpool and then run out five-one winners, um, you know that's that's a, another thing that you, you dream of as a um, as any kind of footballer. And, and that was my Premier League debut. So straight away, I, I probably initiated myself into the group rather well. In terms of playing in the Premier League as a goalkeeper, obviously we're talking about the 90s at this point, but just how how difficult was it for a goalkeeper considering the players obviously you came up against in, in that league, the likes of Matt Letissi, for instance, who would just shoot from anywhere yeah. and usually produce moments of sheer magic? Yeah, I think that probably, you know, that comes back down to what I've just spoken about with, with your preparation. I remember even in those days, I was, you've got to remember, like, you know, the, 
TV was limited to probably match of the day, and and, I, and Sky Sports had just really started to kick in. So it wasn't um, there wasn't a, a, um, a huge amount of of stuff that you could watch. But one of my you know one of the things I did as a goalkeeper was watch the players that I, you know, I would come up against. And like you say, you know, Matt Letizier, he was one of the best um, for distance. Um, Mark Hughes, um, you know, he was one of the strongest centre forwards you'll, you'll play against. And then you had, you know, I played against Ryan Giggs at Old Trafford and within 20 minutes he, he stuck one in my top right-hand corner. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, I, I, I think, um, goodness me, I can even remember, you know, when I, came to play for Celtic, some of the homework I did on uh, Michael Owen um, as a youngster, and then the, uh, he came through one-on-one and he did exactly the opposite. So uh, you know, the, the players that you that I was lucky enough to play against, um, when you look back, um, you know, David Beckham and, and the Cantonals, all those Man, Man United players of that era were, were phenomenal. As a goalkeeper, uh, personally, Jonathan, did you thrive on going to play at the bigger venues? Um, I, you know, it's something I talk about um, to the younger goalkeepers now about um, adrenaline. Um, I think it's I think it's sometimes easier to play at the bigger venues um, because, uh, well, for two reasons. You, you, you know, you, you you dream of being at those venues. You know, when you go to them, um, and then and then secondly, um, because the crowd's so big, um, it's 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 slightly different way of engaging with your, your back four and your and you know and the rest of your team. The reality is as much as you shout, there's very little that, that they can hear. They're so you know, your own players are so engaged, you've got fifty or sixty thousand, sometimes, you know, seventy, eighty thousand people. And and what what as a goalkeeper your job then becomes well, I think the last thirty yards uh, becomes key um with, with your communication, you know, what sort of information you're giving. Um but you know, the, you know, the stadiums. You know, to walk out. And I was lucky as he, uh, enough to walk out of Celtic Park. You know, um, on um, many occasions, and you've got sixty thousand people, and that makes it that makes it a, an absolute joy, really. Your time in English football obviously was, was was quite long. You played obviously after Coventry, Bradford. There was a loan spell with Gillingham, and one of the people you you played under was the European Cup winner and Liverpool legend Phil Neal. What was he like as a manager? And just really des- describe your time in English football before you moved to Celtic. Well, yes, it was, to be honest, it was a little bit of a rocky road. <laughs> and, um, you know, once I, 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 my father left Coventry and I got back into the team there. I, I worked under Phil Neal for a period of around 18 months. Um, you know, and he'd, uh, he'd been there, seen him, but I think um, and he used to tell us on, on several occasions he'd got uh, five uh, Champions League winners medals, <laughs> you know, and, and that sort of uh, commanded instant respect um, in itself. Um, after Phil had um, Ron Atkinson, who was um, a larger-than-life character, uh, you know, and then, and then ended up in Bradford on loan and worked under Chris Kamara, who's, you know, you know well-known now for his, his, his punditry and, um, and the work he does on television and you know, even you know, I can remember going on loan to Bradford City, and um, we were—I think we were tenth in the league at the time—and and, and uh, we went on a run that got us all the way to Wembley and, and got us promotion. And then the, I think two years later, they found themselves in the Premier League. And you know, it's just uh, those experiences—they they sort of then set you up. And, and I think if, 
you know, I think it was a bit of a surprise when I came to Celtic initially, Callum, but when you actually look back on, you know, the level I'd probably played at before, um, even though not not consistently as, as I would have liked, um, that probably helped me um, with, with that transition into, into the Celtic Football Club. Before we come to Celtic and, and, and what, how you got the move there, I'm interested to ask about two big characters you mentioned there, obviously Ron Atkinson and, and Chris Kamara. Characters that are, are very popular with many football fans. What were they like to work with? Um, uh, Ron was Ron was Mr. Bojangles. Really, he was uh, he was he was an era of managers um, that probably died a little bit. Um, you know, there was a, he had a lot of charisma, um, and and to be fair, he's one of his the, one of his strengths was his appointment of Gordon Stracker. Uh, when Gordon came into the into the fold at, at Coventry as a player coach, um, he was outstanding. He was one of the reasons we probably stayed in the Premier League in in that first year. And and um, but but you know, Ron, was, you know, players will always tell you there's there's managers that you sort of dream of working with. And um, and I think when Ron walked in the door at Coventry, that gave the club an immediate lift. Um, Chris Kamara, it was. He was again, you know, larger than life, and and he was actually a really, really good coach. Um, his his sessions um, uh, during the week all led into um, into what I thought was a really positive style of football, and um, um, and people, you know, won't won't uh, re- recall that uh, probably as well as I do having played for him. You had a tough spell towards the end of your time at Bradford, and and Celtic come calling for you. I recently interviewed Jock Brown, who describes your signing as one of his proudest moments um, during his time at the club. How did the move come about? Yeah. Well, really, um, I think Jock kind of took a punt and, um, and you know, I appreciate what he said there. Uh, I was third choice at Bradford, um, probably going nowhere and I was actually considering my future in the game and and um, it was really as simple as a telephone call from... Um, um, an agent said, "Would I be interested?" And then I made sure I followed that call up. Where Dad knew Jock, uh, rang Jock up and said, "Look, he is available. Um, he's available on a free transfer." Um, and and then Jock rang me. Um, I was actually training at the time um, up in a park somewhere in Bradford with the, with the reserve team, and he rang me and said, oh, "His question was, do you think you're capable of playing in an old firm game?" Um, and my answer was absolutely yes. And uh, and the next thing I knew, within two or three hours, um, I, uh, you know, Chris Kamara was good enough to let me leave, albeit to um, you know a giant football club for nothing. Um, and next thing I knew, I found myself driving up to um, Celtic Park and and signing probably um, <laughs> you know one of the most uh, you know the best contract, I, not financial at all, but just about for the for the best club I could have done at um, at any point in anyone's career. Obviously, when you when you joined Celtic, it's an absolute juggernaut of a club. And when you walked in the door, was that very clear to you from from the get go? Yeah, I, I, it was, but I don't think it, it fully struck me for a while. Um, it probably hit me after we got beat by Dunfermline at home, and we were sort of on the verge of, um, and then we went to, we were about to go and play St Johnson. We were on the verge of, you know, three um, three league defeats. The start of the season, which I, I, I had hardly been heard of at a club like Celtic in its history, so I think that was when I, I realised what the pressure was was going to be like playing for a, a club like Celtic. But um, you know, you look back at 
you know, even the St Johnston game, and there were a couple of key moments. Uh, there was a save I made from George O'Boyle, and then um, you know there was there was two goals, one from uh, Henrik at the at the other end, and um, I think that brought us together really, really quickly as a group of, of players. And and um, you know you can say the rest is history, but it was a massive season for us, and and um, and one that you know now you look back and. Um, and you look back on it fondly, but at the time there was it was fraught with um, uh, quite an amount of um, trepidation. Well, as you say, there it's such a historic season we're talking about. You join the club, and, and obviously Rangers are going for for ten in a row, which would have been the first time that would have ever been done. Just how much pressure was on the squad and the club from your perspective, and did you really feel that at the start of the season? Um. Yeah, I think I think we felt it more t- uh, probably about this time of the year. We um, we got through the new year and we we won the the New Year's uh, Day game, um, which which we hadn't done for a while anyway. And and I think from that point forward, we knew that we were probably in the driving seat. And then we lost that opportunity. Went away to uh, to to Ibrox um, and they beat us two 0 I remember Jonas Turn sticking it in the top right hand corner with a thunderous volley. And and the pressure um, to lose it was back on them. The pressure to get back in it was on us. And, it, and there was a spate of results where we we were playing Saturday, they were playing Sunday, and vice versa. And it just turned around. But I, can, I can remember one game in particular where we were very getting very very close to closing the league out, and it was at home to Hibs, and we were expected to win, and and it finished nil nil. And I think that's when I really felt the the pressure ramp up um, um, in respect of us try, trying to trying to win that title. In terms of that season, obviously, Vim Janssen's the manager. In terms of the squad, obviously, you've got Henrik Larsson, an absolute club legend as well. What was Vim like as a manager yeah. and just how good was Henrik Larsson? Um, look, the best way you can prove how good he was was where he went after he left Celtic. Because, you know, um, everybody would have sat there and said, look, see how many goals he scored um, you know, in in the in the Scottish Premiership, um, but he'd also done it for us in Europe, um, and he'd done it done it for us at a level where we all knew um, as players that he was more than capable of doing it at an even higher level. And so, for someone like Henrik to go to Manchester United and Barcelona and do what he did and have such an impact um, in, in the in games that he played for them, that showed you the measure of Henrik. And it wasn't it wasn't just his goal scoring, and we've always said this. Um, it was his work ethic um, off the ball. It was his link play. It was his ability to thread a pass. He was um, he, he he was, and I think will always be remembered as one of the exceptional players to have played for Celtic. And and I know, I know he's he, you know he goes back to Barcelona and they love him. He changed he changed the um, the direction of um, a Champions League game there, and he, he did a fantastic job at Man United. So. Um, yeah, he's a he's a fabulous player and um and um hard, but a great person to have in your group. Obviously, that season's remembered for the club stopping ten in a row. But before we get into that more in depth, a lot of people obviously forget because of the the way the history books are written. Obviously, that you won the league cup that season as well. Um, how was that winning the your first ever trophy in football? Um. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, obviously the the League Cup, were, you know, that was that was a big moment, and um, I can remember, you know, it was one of those occasions where we had to go away from uh, 
away from Hendon and we were playing at Ibrox and I remember looking at my dad up in the stand and, and realising that, you know, when the third goal went in, uh, realising what a big moment that was for me personally um, and but also what a big moment it was for the team and then uh, the, 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 the the season that, you know, that it culminated in, in the league title, I think, um, that was, that was, in the end, it was relief. I think if we'd have gone away and won at, at um, Dunfermline, like we probably should have done, it would have been euphoria. But because it went to the last game, it became um, almost a relief win. In terms of, of the, the title going to the last game and everything that was riding in that, getting into that last game, just how nervous or how much tension was in there? Yeah, it was It was really apparent. Um my goodness me! I remember, you know, at half time I had a towel on my head. I just, I just wanted to block out any negative thoughts. Um, you know, there were there were a couple of uh, moments in the game where, you know, one goal could, to, to St Johnson could have just, um, yeah, it, it could have been. It's just, it's really, to be honest, Callum, it's unthinkable. And even now, I get a little bit nervous about it. <laughs> um, but um, you know, that when the backpack goal went went in, um, that was the the. the the one time that our, I would probably say our nerves were settled, I think I think we took any uh, fighting spirit out of St Johnston, um, and I think the supporters then realised with ten minutes to go, um, the game was done because um, um, we we hadn't conceded a lot of goals that season, um, especially at home. So to have conceded two uh, in the last ten minutes, um, I don't think that was very likely. In terms of that season, obviously, remembered for obviously smell the glove, the celebrations. It's one of the, the seasons in Celtic's history that will forever be remembered for obviously stopping that 10 in a row, which, funnily enough now, obviously a few decades on Celtic are hoping to achieve in the next 18 months. Um, what were the celebrations like after that? You mentioned it was relief, but I imagine you had quite a few days or weeks out in the, out in the alcohol after that one. Yeah, I remember... Um cut short for me actually for a good reason but um, you know the first few days we let our hair down and we were we were a group of, um, that tended to let our hair down anyway um, but you know the, the first few days and then we went out to uh, Portugal um, and, then we, and we I think we played um, I, I sport in Lisbon in a, in a friendly game can't remember much of that but we, we I think we even managed to win that game and, and then we came back and and I was I went to Jersey to the supporters clubs in Jersey and spent two or three days um, with all of those guys, you know, which was quite quite incredible. We walked, you know, I think we walked up and down the Jersey beaches, um, you know, um, singing stand up for the champions and stuff like that. And then and then I got a phone call to go to um, the World Cup with with Scotland, which was um, you know to cap a year off. Uh, couldn't have probably been any better for me. You mentioned the, the Scotland experience there. Going to a World Cup for, for, for many players is the absolute pinnacle of their career. What's it like when you get called up to a World Cup squad and, and what's the preparation like? Because obviously it's a World Cup, it's tournament mode, you're away for, for, for two or three weeks at the very minimum. Um, yeah, well, I, I didn't get the, the, the usual preparation because uh, Scotland already flown out to um, the United States to do their preparation and, and although I've been on a, a reserve list I, you know I thought it was highly unlikely um, barring a miracle and in the end it was it was you know Andy Gorham's decision not to go that uh, enabled me to have that opportunity um, you, do you know what it is it is the pinnacle um, the World Cup um, you know I can remember um, 
you know, being in that tunnel, uh, we opened, obviously opened that World Cup against Brazil in Paris. I remember walking through the tunnel and, and seeing the Brazil lads on the other side and, uh, and you think, wow, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to be involved in a World Cup fixture, um, Brazil's probably the, the, um, greatest team you can, you can actually be pitched against. So, um, although we came, you know, we lost 2-1, we came out with a lot of credit, uh, from that fixture and, and then we went on to draw with Norway and, and then, uh, sort of kind of, uh, let ourselves down against Morocco, but um, you know, you know, I would have loved to have played, but to have been there um, was still um, a, a remarkable uh, turnaround of events from the previous uh, twelve months. When I spoke to Craig Brown recently, he said even though it was Brazil, he wasn't nervous going into the game because he felt that the the squad he had, he was confident in no matter who they played against. But be honest, from a player's perspective, were the players nervous going into that game against Brazil? No, we weren't, and I think I think that was um, you know Craig was a very very experienced Wiley manager, and um, you know like the, the nerves never really got through, and I think that was you know even went through the uh, from what I can remember with through with the the qualification with Craig, um, you know Craig's environment uh, they weren't laid back, but there was um, what you'd call probably a relaxed intensity. We knew the work that we had to do. He was he was really good around a, a group at, at international level. Um, and he knew that when we were coming from all our clubs and environments, it was important to to provide you know um, good facilities, which we obviously had um, a good training ground. And then he wanted the morale around the place to be uh, to be spot on, and, and um, you know he provided that. So I, I, I can I can't remember nerves at all going into any of the World Cup fixtures. You mentioned there the fact that Craig wanted the atmosphere and the morale to be high. He's a he's a very big character, as I know, having having spoken to him and things as well. And obviously, you've worked with him. What would it? What? How was he trying to keep the morale up? Because he's a very funny guy. Yeah, well, I, I just I just think you know he was one of those managers that he used to get around the lads. He, he wasn't he wasn't a mystery to us, um, you know. And and he was, you know, his 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 own, the way he just conducted himself, he never really took himself too seriously, but at the same time, there was a steely determination about him, and and, and I think you, you look at the, the players that he selected, he probably um, he looked at characters, and he looked at experience, um, I think there were quite a number that year um, out of the Celtic squad, and when you think it, that we'd obviously just uh, been made champions, that probably helped for a reasonable camp, Um and I think at his disposal, he had some um, really good players down the spine of the team. You know, you look at, um, you know, uh, Colin Hendry, you had Craig Burley, who was not long out of the, the Premiership. You had Johnny Collins. Um, you know, he had, I, I think you had a spine. You know, Jim Layton was, was up to over 100 caps um, as a goalkeeper. The, the spine of the team was massively experienced. And then, um, and you had some gifted players. You know, you, you talk about, you know, um, um, Ian Jewett, you know, he was he was there. <laughs> um, there. There were some real good players there. But, you know, uh, McAllister. It, it was it was a top top squad. If if you could turn back the clock now and say, right, well, we'll transport that squad into into today's Scotland squad, you know, you, you'd be looking at qualification again. Um, and I, I just think at his disposal, he had some uh, good players and some uh, really strong characters. You mentioned strong, uh, strong characters, some very good players, and you mentioned Craig Burley there, who was also a teammate at club level. What what's Craig Burley like? To what was he like as a footballer? Because obviously he's got a reputation as he's been a sort of grumpy pundit over in America now, and and he's always been a guy who's not shy of opinion. Is he? Is that the way he is generally? Yeah, well, I think he's 
I wouldn't have called him as grumpy when when we knew him. No, I think uh, <laughs> his opinion his opinion was always going to be uh, be heard, and to be honest, uh, pretty relevant. Um, when you think um, where he had come from to sign for Celtic, you know, coming from Chelsea, um, his impact in the squad was was immediate, um, and he, he was a really he was a good player, a real good player. You know, he's a he was a midfielder. He could do box to box, but I think in his heart he loved that he was another one that loved to link and then get on the end of a, of something in and around eighteen to twenty yards. And he managed to do that on frequent occasions. You know, he'd score headers. Um, but um, he, he was. I, I, I'd say he was more of a cheeky grump uh, than anything. He, he, there was no sort of ill meaning about anything that he said. He just he was he wanted to win. He was pretty determined. Before we go on to, to, to further seasons at Celtic, I'm going to rewind slightly with you to the to the Aberdeen game in 1998, which is a game of yours that Celtic fans will always remember. As you, to be honest with you, you kept Celtic in that game and it was an ultimately, ultimately crucial win in that crucial season. Is that the best game of your career looking back? I think yeah, with, with what it meant, um, probably yes. Um, and, and, you know, look, you know, every now and then highlights come on on Twitter, as you probably know, and, and Facebook and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it was it was a Aberdeen's almost always one of the hardest places to go and, and get a result. Um, for some reason, uh, when it comes to the old firm at Pitodri, um it sort of in, it invokes um, some kind of passion um, around the players and the, and the supporters. Um, Probably because it's been so long since they won anything um, themselves, and, and remembering under Alex Ferguson they were they were such a top side. So um, it, it was always um, uh, somewhere to go. That you, there was it was always a little bit of fear going there, and and, and I think on that day, um, you know, to come away with the victory that we did, and and a couple of key saves, and and how motivated they were to beat us. So that probably said a lot about our group on that day. You, we mentioned the fact that that season's an incredible season in the history of Celtic, stopping the 10 in a row. You talked about the celebrations for you that were amazing and then slightly cut short, but for a wonderful reason of going to the World Cup. You come back after the World Cup and obviously it's a new manager that's in place. It's, it's Dr. Joe Vengloss this time. What was your impression of him early on? What was he like compared to Vim Janssen? Um, he was... Um, Joseph was an absolutely fabulous Fabulous man, really good man, and um, I, I think um, I think when I look back at his, his techniques and and some of the players that he brought in, um, he wanted the game played probably the Celtic way. Um, you know, he, he wanted free flowing football, and we, do you know what? It was, it's a, it was a big disappointment that we we didn't give it to. I think there was a hangover from having lost uh, Vim and everything that. Had, had, had started to become really good in that one year. We we lost it very very quickly, and uh, I don't I don't think it was um, uh, Joseph's fault um, whatsoever. I just think it was it was um, it was almost as if the team were in mourning, having you know lost the manager that had started to implement um, you know both a character and a style into a team that had, had been successful in that first year. So. You know, Joe just took on, um, you know, a really tough project. One of his big moments was signing Lubo Moravchik, who 
was very unknown yeah. to many in the Scottish media who sort of ridiculed the signing at the time, but he fair proved them wrong. How 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 convincing was he as soon as he started training with the team? Because even now, looking back, I don't know what foot was his best foot. Yeah, he's a marvel, um, Lou Boat. And again, um, a really uh, nice, he was a nice fellow in the dressing room. Um, and, I, and it would be fair to say that there were, there were you know, like the, the Scottish media didn't really have an inkling as to how good this, this player was. Um, we probably didn't um, until about three or four minutes into that first training session. And as you said, you didn't know what whether he was left or right-footed. Um, as a goalkeeper, he was a nightmare because he could, he could switch play, he could switch direction, he could inside, outside of, of both of those feet were absolute marvels. Um, and... Um, yeah, he just. Um, I, I think I, I remember somewhere that uh, Zinedine Zidane was actually asked who the greatest player he's ever played with was, and he named Lubo Mirachit. Um So I think that alone um, says everything about what Lubo was as a football player, and for him to to, to grace. Uh, so you know, he go, he goes back now, and he's probably I don't know if he's already late forties. And he could probably still be one of the better players on the pitch. He, he might not be able to run around as much, but he's a bit like, um, you know, Zola. Give him the ball and he's um, and he's got a wand. Or he's got two of them, actually. <laughs> In terms of, obviously, playing at Celtic, it'd be amiss of me not to ask, what was it like playing in the Celtic Rangers derby matches? Because obviously they're, they're known all over the world for their, their fierce competitive nature and the, the incredible atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, my, my first taste was at Ibrox, um, so you can't go anywhere more intimidating than that for your first old firm game. And, and under the circumstances of, of that season, it was huge. Um, the problem was, well, you know, uh, Tina Turner sent me the best. It's one of my favourite songs. So you go out and you listen to this song, and, and that actually um, that actually gets your adrenaline going without having uh, 50,000 people that... Uh, Clearly, want you to throw the ball in the back of your net. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like that, and I can I can vividly remember walking out now singing it. Um, not that I should have been, but it was <laughs> it was uh, you know it was that, that was what you had to experience every time you went there. Um, but the you know the outcome of that game wasn't great. I think Richard Goff scored and and, and they weren't one nil. Um, but I think I think that also helped me looking back. I made a reasonable game against against them despite the loss, and that, that probably set me into all firm games going forward. Um, but, there, you know, there, there's nothing like them. There's nothing like the atmosphere. There's nothing like, um, um, you know, the way, you know, if I think about now um, some of the things that were said to me um, by uh, the opposition um, uh, uh, supporters, then, goodness me, uh, we'd... Uh, we, we'd be talking all day about what's what's right and what's wrong for safe people, but it was just a, a part of old firm life, really. In terms of that, obviously you mentioned the fact that that fans having a go at you, being a goalkeeper especially, the fact that you're basically close to the fans the whole game is that tough to to deal with mentally, yeah. or can you block it out? Um, no, you you can't you can't block it out. You, you you're so close to them, and um, I think the only thing you can probably do is not look any of them in the face um you know you see this um this um, myriad of faces and they've all got um you know they've all got red white and blue on but then you know when you've got your back to them at the other end uh you can see the uh the green and white um 
And uh, I think that's a shame what's happened there, Callum, you know, that, that, that they've um, limited the supporters because that was always a big part of, of um, going away or even, you know, the Rangers supporters coming to Celtic Park was was um, th- those ends with the opposition. That made for the atmosphere. And I think um, it's probably uh, done done the, the old firm game a disservice that those supporters um, aren't allowed to... To, to go and support their teams um, in the way they have done in as, as history has shown. Obviously, the nature of those games, every single one's important, regardless of where each team is in the league, just for bragging rights. When you win that game, best feel in the world, and when you lose it, are you just completely despaired? Um, you know what? You, you, I mean, the, the number of times, Tom, uh, we went where you've you you won one and then you've actually got to play them next week. The amount of times you used to get drawn against Rangers in the cup and you had a really quick turnaround and um, and it enabled you to kind of uh, get rid of um, any poor feelings if, if you hadn't won. Um, um, but yeah, I think um, because you knew how passionate the supporters were about winning and losing against against Rangers, um, it, 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 it didn't, it had to affect you and it should have affected you. Um, um, and then it was also really important to, to make sure that um, your league form or your cup form then returned as quickly as possible because you you couldn't have you couldn't let that have a long-lasting effect um, because you knew it would damage it could damage a um, you know um, a league campaign very very quickly. We mentioned there going back to the Joseph Engloss season that you look back in that and the players look back in that with obviously disappointment um, having stopped obviously. The, the potential 10 in a row from Rangers it's, and, and winning the league title back after so many years you did mention you felt there could have yeah. it's probably true that there was a bit of a hangover there but looking back in that season how would you sum it up? Um, just just in the end it was disjointed um, and I think I, I can't remember the point difference but I think it was it, was, it wasn't great Um and we, and we, you know, we didn't, we didn't win anything. I, I, of, of all the people that um, you, I've worked under um, as a manager, if there's one person I, I would have loved to have been able to taught him to be able to walk away with a trophy itself. It would have been Joseph um, because he was, he was genuinely such a nice guy. Now, he leaves the club, and obviously John Barnes comes in. Obviously, Kenny Dalglish returns to the club, club in a different role as well. What were your initial thoughts when John Barnes came in? Because obviously he was he's one of the most incredible footballers that England have ever produced, yeah. but he was a rookie manager at that time. Yeah, John, um, I, I think looking back, and um, I think the, 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 that job was a huge job um, for what you would call a rookie manager. Um, I'm not saying that John didn't have the, the personality to potentially pull it off, Um but because of the previous season, um, there was there was a huge amount of pressure um, straight away. Um, and even though you know you had you had Kenny um, been a fabulous manager, um, um, it still it still was a tough thing because as a, as a new manager, you want to find your own way. You want to you want to set your own um, style of football up, which, 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 you know, to be fair to John, some of the performances that we had at Celtic um, in, in the short time he was there, I thought were fantastic. There was one at home to, to Aberdeen that we won, I think, 7-0. I thought we were absolutely brilliant. And, I, you know, the goalkeeper, I didn't have a lot to do in that game. But to watch the boys and the movement, um, 
Um, I thought we were brilliant that day. Um, and he, you know, he, because it's about winning, he probably didn't get that time um, to really set themselves in. But um, when you don't win itself, it, and the pressure comes on, um, it manifests, it manifests in the team. Um, and then in the end, um, it resulted in John's job um, and Kenny taking over. And ironically enough, um, we won the League Cup that year um, at the end of that season. Um, so I think it was a really tough uh, opportunity um, um, that came around for John and uh, it didn't work. Obviously, the big flashpoint before Kenny takes over is the the infamous, if you're a Celtic supporter, famous if you're Inverness, uh, Super Cali, Go Ballistic, Celtic are atrocious that game. Was that one of the, the lowest moments you've ever had in football? Obviously, it ultimately cost Johnny's job. Sorry, say that again, Callum. Sorry, so obviously... The Super Cali Go Ballistic Celtic an atrocious game. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A, an infamous game if you're a Celtic fan, but a famous game, obviously, if you're an Inverness fan. Looking back, obviously, that yeah. game ultimately cost Johnny's job in a way. Was that one of the? Is yeah. that the lowest point you've ever had in the game? Um, it's the biggest shock I've probably ever been involved in um, in terms of results, um, but. You know, I wouldn't call it my my biggest disappointment. I think um, the way it un- all unfolded, um, and you know, John losing his job, um, you know, there were, there were so many reasons behind that, um, as as I've, as I've mentioned, and and I think in the end it was probably the right thing. And and you know, I, I watched um, obviously there was a piece on BBC this week um, that. They came down to interview me about that exact fixture, and when you watch some of the Inverness uh, Cali boys. You know they they've got a sense of it, and now and then post that match they were being thanked by Celtic supporters because it resulted in in a change of management and and ultimately it resulted in Martin O'Neill coming to the club. Obviously, that game's um, talked about quite a lot. Ian Wright mentions quite often that Mark Viduka, um refused to come back out for for the second half in one of the games in a game obviously at that period. Was that just something that summed up the sort of disjointed nature of everything? Um, yeah, it was. It was. It was, I mean, it was, it was stuck in the dressing room. It was, it was a, you know, the, the, the group wasn't together like I'd witnessed it together before, um, especially in 1988. I think there was, uh, there was an element of, of us as a group of players that were quite strong-minded and and... You know, Ian, you know, the, the Dukes, uh, you know, he was a pretty uh, laid-back big Australian, but, um, you know, he was a top goal scorer for us. And he ended up, you know, obviously going on to to, to have his big moves. I mean, Ian was at the end of his career, but Ian was he was absolutely fantastic in our dressing room as a as a person. And um, and uh, we enjoyed having him around. And, uh, you know, he, he was, you know, when he saw it at the end of his career to um, play a club like Celtic, you know, you're going to jump at that. And, uh you know, and um, he probably he probably uh, looks back and thinks, well, there was a little blip there, but I, I would imagine there were times where he he, um, he actually enjoyed being at the football club. We talked about John Barnes obviously leaving the club, the reasons behind that. Kenny comes in to the end of the season, you win the League Cup. What was it like working under Kenny Dalglish, and what was it like winning that League Cup? Was it was it something that was a relief because, as you've said, under Doctor Joe. He didn't get a trophy, so was it good to get another trophy back in the cabinet, albeit not the league title? Yeah, it was. It was because it kind of ended ended um, almost a two year 
um, or two season period with that one. Uh, Kenny was he was a fair manager, Callum. He um, you know I, there, there was a couple of things going on at the time as I said in the dressing room. Um, and myself, I was involved with Al Berkovich, um, you know, where we did CI to I and 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 Kenny sort of took me out of it initially, and I got back in, and and he was fair. Um, and he was a good manager as well. He, you know, he'd been around the traps. He knew probably how to to bring the boys back into line. He managed to do to do that um, well enough for us to to win that early cup. And um, and then obviously, you know, uh, he left, and um, the Messiah came in. <laughs> <laughs> you say that as well. And Martin Adil, obviously a, a manager who's done so much in the game. You mentioned him there, the Messiah, and, and many Celtic, and I say many, and Celtic fans' eyes, he is the Messiah. He comes in, and you start as his number one goalkeeper. What was he like to work with? Obviously, a lot of players over the years have said, as great a manager he was, he wasn't big on, obviously, tactics as such. He, he kind of set the team up for the individuals to, to play. Um, again, he was. You know, if I go back to what I said about Ron Atkinson, and I'm not, I'm not putting them in the same category as managers. Um, I'm, uh, uh, the charisma and when someone like Martin walks in the room, he's in control of that room. Um, his his demeanour around the place, um, you know, you respected him. You know, you know, once European Cups, um, you know, he played in the great Nottingham Forest team. Um, he'd been an international. Um, and at the same time, you know, he used to have, he had so many different characters within his personality. And, and that was his strength. And, and straight away, he, um, he endorsed um, a lot of the boys that were already there. He added to them uh, with, with some really good signings. Um, and, and that made us a really strong footballing, footballing unit is the best way I can put it. Um, that's what he, he is. He was and still is good at putting together. He puts he puts together a unit, um, and within that unit, those those players, you if if you're not of a strong nature, you won't survive. And therefore, you know the next the next player comes in and and their strong characters, and all that does then is lift the group. And um, it was phenomenal. That season was phenomenal, really. Um, how it turned around. Um, in such a short space of time, purely down to his personality and the and the personalities that he recruited. You mentioned there the 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 early season. Obviously, he brought some incredibly big names in, and, and obviously Celtic legends. When when you look back now, Neil Lennon, Chris Sutton, John Hartson, those three yeah. players in particular are all big characters. Especially Chris Sutton. What was he yeah. like too? Was he a wind up merchant? Yeah, total wind up. Still is. Uh, he tends up to wind up a few more people now, even than he did even then. Um, but again, he, he, you know, you think of where he came from, and then uh, what he brought the group. Um, he was he was the perfect target man. Target man. He was a tremendous foil for Henrik. He could pin a centre back, um, but then he could be six, seven yards out from goal, and he could finish left and right foot and with his head. Um, so you add you add you you add the football ability to a strong strong personality and you you get a top top quality player but you know they have to pay for it then i don't you know you think of what what even now Celtic pay for players that's not saying there are any less less players but you know if you were multiplied what chris sutton was worth then to today's transfer market and i think he'd be between 30 and 40 million pounds absolutely and obviously you said he was a perfect foil for henrik larson 
everyone obviously talks about the brilliance yeah. of Hendrik Larson, and, and, and that's undisputed. He, he done it at Celtic, he done it at Man United, done it at Barcelona, Champions League yeah. winner, legend of the game. What kind of character is Henrik Larsson? Is he is he a quiet guy who goes about his business quietly, or did did he join in in all the fun in the dressing room as well? No, he was he was he was a big part of the dressing room in in respect of what what uh, you know what went on in there. Um, but he, I would have said he he when he needed to, he took himself away from it, um, and I think that again that made him what he was um, because you know when it comes down to it. Uh, Centre forwards, they've got to have an element of uh, of selfishness about them, um, and 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 you know you don't blame them for that. You know you look at the, the people like Gary Lineker and your Alan Shearers. You know when you're uh, I don't know eight to fifteen yards out, you got one thing in your mind, and that's that's finding the finding the onion bag, and 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 that's the streak you have to have in you. If you haven't got that streak. To say I'm good enough to put the ball um, within that eight yards, uh, you've got no chance. And, and I think that that comes out of your personality as, as much as it does your, you know, your football mess. Cal, I've I've got to. I seriously, I've got to go pick my car up. Just been serviced. Can can I ring you back once I've done that and finish this off? Is that all right? Yeah, of course you can. Not a problem. Uh, so Jonathan, obviously, when Martin and Neil came to Celtic. His first old firm derby match was the famous 6-2 demolition derby, as Celtic fans call it. What was that game like to play in? Because the sun was scorching and obviously the game's also remembered for, for the incredible Henrik Larsson goal that Ian Crocker famously described as being utterly sensational. Yeah, um, I, it was probably one of the most expected results, <laughs> you know, given... Um, Given what had gone on in the previous two years, but um, you know we started the game incredibly. You know the three goals um, that put us in front. Uh, um, I, I, I think uh, they had a goal disallowed, which I think if it went to VAR now would probably have been onside. So, um, and then the, the, they scored. I thought it was a controversial one as well. It pitches your VAR or VAR or the, the technology we have would have, have given about uh, Claudia Reyna's goal. But um, I remember walking in at half time. And um, I was stood at the urinal, funny enough, and Martin was stood next to me. And he just goes, was it a goal? And I said, um, I'm not sure if it was in or not. He said, OK. He said, uh, the next goal is really important. Um, and, and like, um, obviously, uh, you know, I, all I remember is a ball come across my box, catching it at the near post, hiking a volley um, high into the sky at, at Parkhead. And... Uh, you know, big city pulling it down, and then <laughs> an absolute bit of magic from uh, Henrik. Uh, I don't know. I still to this day I don't know how he uses that technique to put it in the back of the net, but it, it brilliant goal. Um, and then under the circumstances, for us to go and take out six two is amazing. In terms of training with those sort of players, Larson, Sutton, Hartson, Lambert, Petrov, yeah. were they always trying those sort of shots and in, in training? Obviously, because Paul Lambert scored a belter of a goal that game as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when you sign players, like, you know, you think where, where Paul came from, um, you think um, of the career Stillian went on to have. Um, and I think the kind of players that Celtic have always wanted to sign, they've all got that kind of ability and that skill set. And, and so it should never really be a surprise when, you know, when someone pulls it off. Uh, we know, obviously, we spoke about uh, Lubo Moravchik, but 
I think um, you know there were probably seven or eight players that all had that ability in that group, and that's why that's why it was such a good team to watch. Rab Douglas obviously is brought in by Martin in that in that season. Yeah. As a goalkeeper, do you welcome that competition, or does it irk you a wee bit that there's somebody else coming in trying to take your place? No, I was to be honest, that I was pretty aware um, quite early into Martin's reign that. That he he was looking at uh, boosting the goalkeeping stocks. Um, obviously, I didn't know who it was going to be. We had uh, Dimitri was there, but he was always in and out with his injury. Um, you know, um, so for you know when Rab, Rab walked in the door, it was it was actually quite nice. And, and the the best part is we're really good pals now. And, and I think you know this is something you learn as a Celtic player. You you have to put. Um, Really, um, if you want to be part of a club and part of a successful club, you, you sometimes have to put your, you know, your personal um, goals to the back burner for the good of of, of the group. Um, and and I, you know, whilst I was always disappointed, um, you know, after, I was disappointed when I was first left out for Martin. He made it clear that he wanted to be at the club and offered me a new contract. And and Rab and I fought a, a really strong bond early on. I, you know, I appreciate where he come from. He'd been at Dundee. You know, he he's he done a great job there, deserved his move, and, and it was up to, to him and I and, and the other goalkeepers at the club um, to make sure that we kept enough clean sheets or kept the ball out of the back of the net at the court times to win the league. That's what was most important. And, and really, at any football club, that's always the most important thing. In, in terms of being a goalkeeper, when you lose your place in the team, how hard is it to take? Because obviously if you're a central midfielder or any other position in the park, the manager might rotate and even sub you on. Whereas when you're a goalkeeper, the chances of the team being rotated obviously is quite slim. Yeah, I think in normal circumstances it is. But I knew um, that I was always going to get a little window because Rab was cup-tied. I had the um, obviously had the League Cup um, that was, was going to be there for me to be able to play. And I think, I think um, um, Rab was also... Um, uh, Scottish, no, he wasn't Scottish Cup tied, uh, but I, you know, there was a window for me there to, to be able to play. I mean, when I lost my place in the team, the next game I played in, I think, was um, a semi-final at Hamden against Rangers. So, you know, you, it, it was uh, professionally my job was to make sure I was ready for um, for that kind of game. Um, and you know, I think we won out three-one uh, winners that night that got us into the final and and and, and started. Um, you know that that was that was the first part of of the treble that year. Obviously, winning any treble is is absolutely sensational, and and to do it in Martin's first season yeah. made him very proud. You mentioned the fact that Rab obviously came in and, and played some games, but as you rightly said, you started the first thirteen games. It was that season. You also played in the League Cup and and thoroughly deserved your medals. So yeah. looking back, how amazing was that season to be involved in for for you? Well, one of the things I look back on now is that there was a picture of us all after the Scottish Cup final that was taken at, um, at Parkhead with all three trophies. And we were all in our grey suits. And I've never seen such an, uh, an array of smiles and, and such. You, you could see that sense of achievement on that group. And it was a pretty big squad. Um, and that's, that's one of the things I remember. Um, you know, I, I think in the Scottish Cup final... Um, you know, I think Henrik was on fire again. Jack and Mac, you, you know, it, it was such a strong group. And, and you've got to remember, you know, even with uh, Big Alan Stubbs, we'd had a few issues in the in the squad health-wise over over um, that period of time as well. And um, 
we were we were together, um, and I, I I probably see it um, in the current uh, squad of players. You can see there's a togetherness about them at, at crucial times. What was a Martin and Neil team talk like? His team talks. Yeah. Um, well, I, I remember one specifically. Um, he came into the change room. He always used to name the team about two o'clock. Um, Somebody named the team, walked back out again. And then I remember him walking in before a Hibs game. And he just, he looked around the room and he said to us, um, I'm not sure if you guys are up for it today. And walked back out again. And, and you know, we, as you do at the group of players, you're sort of looking around and go, you know, what just happened there? And we won 5-0. And so it was one of the cutest of things that he'd said that had probably sparked, um, you know, internal reaction from every single one of the players. Chris Sutton has been on record and he always tells this funny story that he felt that you would come in sometimes if you were having a poor game um, as a team and Martin would get around all the players individually, then get to Henrik Larson and just say, keep doing what you're doing, Henrik. Is that something that was the case? <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably did. <laughs> it's funny how, because you all remember things, different things. And, uh, um, you know, I can imagine, you know, Martin sometimes, I remember him coming in once and uh, a big Bobo Bowdy wasn't doing exactly as he should have done. And, uh, and he was pretending to be Bobo Bowdy. And he said, you know, just to say, you know, that, that striker should hold you off. You're six foot four. You know, you're built like giant haystacks. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there was always different things. I, I, I can actually remember being told by a player um, who'd worked under Martin just before Martin, or as Martin was arriving, he turned around to me and said, whatever you do, um, don't come back at me. Don't come back at him in the changing room. He says, because that'll be the end of you. And I can remember pre-season once uh, I conceded a goal that it was out in Germany I think we do two to the two pre-season and the goal had gone in from about 25 yards and arguably it wasn't in the top corner and I remember Martin just looking over the top of his glasses again I'm not sure if that was a goal and I remember through my head thinking well it, it, it certainly went past me and then um, subliminally thinking don't answer him back don't answer him back and didn't bit my tongue which was sometimes hard for me in my career and, and that probably that bit of advice uh, probably helped me because because you know um, as I said before Martin you Martin always had the upper hand in, in some way in terms of the season where you win the treble how are the celebrations at the end of that season you mentioned the picture at, at Celtic Park and having never saw a group yeah. of men so happy together what was it like in terms of celebrating because it's an achievement that I know obviously Celtic have won the, the treble three years in the trot now, but until Martin, yeah. when Martin came in, it was something that only it was Jock Steen previously that had won it. Yeah, because well, then, because we were kind of on a roller coaster that year, you know, and you go back to the six two, um, and then there were, we I think we won away at, at Rangers for the first time in a long time and, and won really well at their place and. You know, it was almost as it was coming. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't like something that just went bang. It was something that we that built built up all through the season. And um, and I think you know the celebrations. I, I can't remember them if I'm really honest with you. Um, again, you know, in, and, and this was the good thing. I remember. I remember one of the cup finals afterwards that we'd won. I think it must have been the league cup. We all went out, and what was quite nice, you know, usually 
staff management don't always mix, you know, um, in a big way. But Martin was quite big on that. And um, after after winning something, he wanted to be part, and probably because he remembers um, having won so much himself, how good it was to be part of that group. And you know, I remember the wives and all, the, all his wives and his children. Everyone was there in the winning moment. And and this is the other thing as well. You know, not spoken about the club so much, but the club and the and the people that were part of our everyday lives, the kit people, um, you know, the, those at the doors at, um, you know, at Parkhead, they were always part of those celebrations as well. They always came along with us. Um, uh, and we were, you know, we were just, it, I think that's born out of the Celtic way, really. You mentioned, obviously, those behind the scenes at the club playing their part and the, the supporters, of course, as well. Being at Celtic at that time yeah. was everything, but especially when Martin came in, was everything just so united. And as I say, for being a Celtic goalkeeper, you must have got stopped for autographs for fans in some of the most bizarre places. Cool, yeah, I suppose so. Um, you know, I think that's the other thing you should never take for granted when you play for a club like Celtic, and, and even even any professional footballer uh, should never. Um, you know, if someone asks you for your autograph you know, you should sign it. Um, at the end of the day, you represent their club. Um, and, and I think um, that comes down to the, the privilege of playing for a big club and, and learning, you know, the, the humility around it. And, and, and you know, these this things don't always go right at certain times and that's when it gets really tough and that's why also you have to enjoy the big moments and the winning moments of football clubs and, and they don't come much bigger than, than when you win itself it. In terms of your time at Celtic, you obviously stayed at the club after the after the treble winning season, and you weren't number one yeah. for the majority of the time after that. Was that tough for you, and why did you decide to stay? I, I, I stayed um, because I because I probably matured. Um, I think um, if it had been earlier in my career, I would have probably made a really hasty decision. I stayed because the manager really wanted me to stay as part of the group, even though um, there were times, you know, he didn't, he didn't necessarily see me as the first choice. He saw me as someone that was that gave value to the squad and, and had the experience of playing if he needed me. And and one of the big things that sat, sat with me um, was after one of our, um, uh, when we won the league, one of the seasons, I think I'd been on the bench for nearly every single game. I played one European game. I think I played one Scottish Cup and one League Cup game. I, I don't think I played one League game, right? And at the end of it, we um, when we won the title, all the all the lads we were training at Parkhead, and and Martin got us in a big huddle um, around the um, around the centre circle. And you, you know, you, you're only entitled to a, a League winners medal if you played a certain proportion of games. And he, he he got his bag and he put all the medals. Um, out to the lads, and then he said, "I've got one more here." He said, uh, "He says, um, myself and my staff have have pitched it and bought this for a player who who has constantly been there, but hardly played, but been a massive part of the group." And he presented me with um, with the, the medal for that season. You know, I wasn't entitled to one, but that that was the measure of of him as a manager. And, That's amazing. And that was probably you know a big part of my loyalty to to him and. and Will always be, you know. I, I, I you know, it's, it's one of those. I, you know, even though I've won two other league titles with the club and played enough games, I still one that I look at with fondness because of how it, how it, it came about, really. 
Absolutely, and as you say, it's an absolute measure of, of the amazing person that Martin Ennell is. And in terms of football, I've yeah. not really heard anyone have a bad word to say about him. And I need to ask you about a member of his staff, and that man is John Robertson, another European Cup winner, a man who enjoys a cigarette or five. Yeah. What was he like in the training field? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he, was, he was brilliant, uh, Robert. I still see him now, you know, as well. Obviously, every time we play, not first. Um, I've been down, and he's usually there. I've seen him at a couple of, of days um, at Celtic. Um, you know, he was uh, he was your, your typical number two. Um, again, you don't see a lot a lot now. He was he was Martin's real sidekick, and I, 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 I've got to mention Steve Walford because he Wally was obviously the, the the coach on the grass. But Robbo had eyes; he had eyes everywhere. But they weren't sort of these um, invading eyes. Whereas players, we thought he was um, he was going to go back to the manager. And he was uh, he had the, the personality. That we could share, and he was, was in our group, and there was no fear in and around that. And and that's a, that's a little bit of magic when it comes to a number two, because he, you knew that any information that went back to magic. You know, I've been a number two myself, and I'm a coach. Sort of things go back. Other stuff minor. It doesn't need to. And that's why we were so comfortable with Robbo, and that's why he was such a good assistant manager. And the other thing was he had a good eye for a player. I know he went and watched a lot of the players that Martin wanted. And, and he was one of the car, you know, main target votes over the recruitment. Overall, Jonathan, how do you reflect in your time at Celtic? You stayed at the club, as we mentioned there, until 2003 before yeah. you left for Preston. But overall, having played for multiple managers at the club during highs at Celtic and lows at Celtic, how do you reflect in your time there? Pure joy, really. Pure joy. Um, I wish I could rewind it and do it all again. Um couple of little things I might have done differently, um, but I wouldn't have changed anything um, uh, drastically. You know, it was, um, it's a dream. You know, when you leave, you know, and, and, and when you first leave a club like Celtic, you can't, you, you can't breathe a sigh of relief because of the pressure. Within a very short space of time, two or four months, you go, oh my goodness, why have I left? Not because you're not enjoying what you're doing, but because of how, how what an impact the club has on you. Um, and you know, and, and even even after you know, even 15 years, it's more than that. It's 18, 17, 18 years on. I still dream um, that I play for Celtic sometimes. And you wake up and you think, Oh God, I wish that could happen again. That's how that's how much this club gets. That's incredible, and and as as you've said quite rightly, not many people get to play for Celtic. Um, never mind win titles with them. So what an achievement. Um, and it's something that you and your family must be very proud of. Yeah, always. You know, sons are sons are hardcore Celtic supporter. Um, daughters, daughter is. Uh, yeah, it's it's part of it's part of our lives, and um, you know, until the day I die, it, it will remain that way. After Celtic, you move on to to Preston down in England. How did that move come about? And yeah. were you just excited to go back to get back playing games again?
don't worry about anything on your contract. We'll look after that. He said, um, we're going to let you go for nothing because you're such a good servant to this club. Um, just make a football decision. If you want to go and play football, um, and this is your time to go and, you know, your last couple of years in your career to go and play. And, and, and again, come back to that management, but to, to have, been, have been given that kind of advice, even though, you know, he was sort of saying, you know, times to leave, he probably was saying it was my time to leave, he was sort of making it from a football perspective, there was nothing else involved. Um, and, and so that, you know, I took that decision. I, it wasn't until I actually arrived in Paul Preston, I, re- I realised that um, that they were fighting, kind of fighting a relegation battle. I got from one extreme to the other, but um, as it was, the results they were really, really quickly, um, and it resulted um, about uh, seven months later in me getting back into the Scotland squad, um, uh, which was you know, obviously uh, a, a, a pleasure again as well under both events. What was it like working under Craig Brown this time at club level? Um, well, but again, you know, you go back to what I spoke before. His environments are always really positive, and we signed some really. We actually signed Craig Burley and Brian and myself and Simon Lynch, all south. So there was a there was a there was a good feel in the camp. There was some really good um, English pros, Graham Alexander, another Scott, funny enough, we, yeah, that, that was already at the club. He, he was, you know, like Mister Preston at the time. And we signed some. Um, um, some boys around uh, Ricardo Fuller, who's a fantastic centre forward. Eddie Lewis in America, quite an eclectic group, and 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 uh, Steve Scott's in, in amongst all of them, um, and as and Billy Davis was the assistant coach. So I mean, it was um, it was almost like um, you know a, a Scottish team away from Scotland uh, with a mix of others in. And we did we actually did all right. We you know and, and that group uh, my left before it happened uh, about six months before it happened, but that group went on to, to make the Wembley playoffs. In terms of playing for Preston at Deepdale, it seems like a really nice ground to play at because it's such a, a historic club and a, and a club that carries itself very well, in my opinion. Well, you know, we play Derby in a few weeks and I think we're the first uh, club in the England to, to make 5,000 uh, Football League appearances, uh, which is an incredible milestone when you think about um, how many years that's taken. Um, and, and it is. It's you know you, you think of uh, uh, Tom Finney obviously uh, played for the club. When I first came to Preston, he was one of the first guys I met. You know, even in his I think he was in his 80s at the time, maybe his late 70s. He would come into the club every single day, um, open his mail. He was still getting bags of mail um, based on uh, you know the, the the football prowess that, that he'd had um, in, in his career. So. And I think uh, because of that, uh, the, the club's got some, uh, again, got good traditional football roots. In terms of leaving Preston, after your time, obviously, yeah. leaving them, a, a, a while later, you end up going to New Zealand at Hawke's Bay. You, you play some yeah. games there and then yeah. you end up, obviously, becoming the manager alongside, obviously, your father as well. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, yeah that was, um, it was good fun. And it was... Um, I ended up managing Hawke's Bay for four years. Um, when I took over, we were at the bottom of the league and we, we ended up finishing uh, fourth um, in my last year. Um, and, and and it was a really good learning curve for me. Um, you know, the budget wasn't brilliant, but we, we recruited a lot of the good young under-20 talent from around New Zealand. We, we built up an academy. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, I think as, as far as my coaching development was going, it was... It, it was um, 
it, it was invaluable, really. Um, I learned all facets of, of how you you know you run a football club and what's important, um, and how so how important development is within within um, within you know a, a region uh, like Hawke's Bay that I lived in, and, and it was also a wonderful place to live. And there was some, I'd say there was some colourful moments with my father as assistant as well. <laughs> <laughs> what was that like? Was it? Hard for him not to obviously try and I don't mean take over because obviously he respects the fact you're the manager, yeah, of course yeah. he does. But having managed himself at such a high level, was he desperate to pitch in at times yeah. and say, Let me handle this? Well, you know, not really. He probably did, but he, he knows the whole back. But you know, there's no point me employing or giving my father that role if I didn't actually make the most of, of that experience. Um, and and you know, there were, there were times where he and I would, would be um, we'd be long ahead about something. But the one thing he did say to me, I asked him about the team very early in in, um, in, the, in my role as a manager, and he said, "No, no, no you're the manager. You pick the team. I'm not picking the team because it's not my responsibility." So, so right from that outset, um, that that taught me a lesson. But yeah, it was my responsibility. I pick the team, and then you know, if they win or lose, it's all draw. It's, it's, it's my bag, but. Um, as, a, as an experienced um, old head, you know, John, uh, John Robertson and uh, Greyhead Mack and all that, he was absolutely um, brilliant for me. Absolutely, and as you say, with, when you've got an experienced assistant, regardless of whether it's your father or not, as you mentioned, it would be naive not to tap into that, and the fact you tapped into that must have helped. What was the standard of football like in New Zealand? It was, it was uh, well, at that level... In between, there was uh, um, we had, as I said, we had young internationals, and we had a couple of experienced older internationals, Zealand internationals. I signed, um, I signed Ricky Gillis, who uh, came over from Scotland. He was one of my import players. I signed a Korean uh, international, Woo Jae Kim, who no one would know, but he played like 35 times for Korea. Um, I actually signed Chris Davies, the uh, uh, Celtic, and obviously currently the. Uh, Leicester assistant manager. He was one of my uh, oh. first signings. I brought him out from Reading, and, and he had two years with us. Um, and yeah, he um, he. I wonder whether he learned anything from my management. I'm not so sure. Probably more from <laughs> Brendan than myself. But uh, you know, you know, when you think about that link uh, and where he ended up, um, you know, he and I used to speak frequently about Celtic um, when he was when he was there, and. Um, yeah, it was, um, it's quite remarkable how, how that came full circle. From, obviously, being in New Zealand, you get an opportunity to go to Perth Glory, this time's assistant manager. Now, that is a great <laughs> opportunity, but you get your, you find yourself yeah. working alongside Ian Ferguson, who's a Rangers icon. How strange <laughs> was it to work with such a former rival? Oh, my goodness. You know what? I, I was... Um, I was, I was get- Getting the house ready, I was due to come back to, to the UK um, for a holiday. It must have been um, it must have been May June of that year, and um, the phone went. And, was, and usually, well, I'm, I'm usually in bed by ten o'clock, absolutely clean crackered. And, and for some reason, I was up at twelve o'clock. The phone rings, and um, it's 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 the guy, Jonathan. Yeah, it's Ian Ferguson here, and I'm thinking, I'm picking in my head, thinking, you know what, Ian, Ian Ferguson. Rangers, the field player. Oh, hi, hi, he's going that's right. He said, look, he said, um, you know, you've obviously been goalkeeping coaching at the Wellington Phoenix. He said, uh, you've worked with Danny Vucevic, who's my goalkeeper. I said, I want you to come and be my assistant, so goalkeeping coach. And I'm, and I'm thinking down the phone, I think, <laughs> and I'm 
are you serious? He went, yeah, 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 come, come on. He says, he says uh, I've got Stuart Munro, who was obviously other, another Rangers uh, player. He says, come on, we'll have, a good, we'll have a good time. Honestly, it was it was for eight months, the banter that flew around um, and, uh, and, and the experience I had with Ian was as good as any. He, 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 we, when we first got there, our pre-season trip was to um, South Africa. And he was doing his A license, and um, and we were all sitting in a room, and we were flying things together about his A license, about uh, philosophies and style of plays and all that. And he said, he said, yeah, but the one thing he wanted, he said, with his staff, he wanted to become friends with his staff. He actually wanted a relationship, which is sometimes really difficult in football, even as coaches. And I've got to say, to this day, I kept uh, in touch with with. Um, Ian, and you know, you, it's the most unlikely um, of partnerships. Um, but <laughs> Absolutely. Per story, we were we were actually staring down the barrel of a gun about Christmas time. We, I think we were second or third from bottom in the league, and we we thought we were going to get the sack. And, um, and we we all had a, a little chat, me, Stuart, and and Fergie. And I thought Fergie's one of Fergie's big strengths was his man management, and clearly as you know, as a, as a captain of the club that he plays for. Um, it was his strength. So I said, you've got to get around the players now. You've got to really bring your personality out with these boys. And I think we then went on, I think we won 11 out of the last 13 games to get into the playoffs. And we ended up in the grand final and lost by a, a horrible little uh, penalty against. And, and so, so, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a great year. It really was a great year. And, um, and you know, despite all that adversary stuff from Celtic and Rangers, um, you know, people might frown on it, but come on. Um, it, sometimes you have to look past it. And, and on this occasion, he and I did, and Stewie, and uh, we had a great year. Did you have banter about Celtic Rangers, or did you just keep that away? Oh, I, uh, uh, hey, it was every day. It was every week. It was every weekend. It was <laughs> non-stop. And we also had an operations manager called Ian Dillon. And when he turned up, we turned up, we turned up, turned up to pick up from the airport on the first day. Little Stewie, I knew what I knew what side of the fence he was on, right? And then Ian came in this bright green jumper, so I knew exactly what the side of the fence that Ian was on. So it kind of levelled out. And mm-hmm. then in the end, we signed um, we signed young Liam Miller, well not a young one at the time. We signed a uh, Liam Miller. God bless it. God bless him. And um, and uh, so that sort of it put in the uh, in the Celtic favour three to two, I think, at that point. So we were quite happy. <laughs> <laughs> From obviously your time in New Zealand and obviously Australia. You, you come back to the UK yeah. and you're working, obviously, with Tony Pulis at, at West Brom and, and obviously, yeah. Middlesbrough. What was it like working under Tony Pulis? Is, and also, sorry, it's a long question, this. Is being a goalkeeping coach your favourite role over a manager or assistant role? Um, well, that's the first thing. Um, I think I'd known Tony. Tony was actually... Um, uh, my dad's reserve team coach at Bristol Rovers and that was, that was where the link came in and... And um, five years ago, almost to the day, my dad and I were sat in um, sat in um, a house in New Zealand and we were watching Liverpool against Wimbledon in the FA Cup. They'd drawn each other. First time, I think, since 1988, the final. Um, and he was talking to me and he says, oh, Tony Pierce is looking for a goalkeeping coach. And I went, have you got his number? And he said, yeah. So I just sent uh, Tony a really quick text. If you fancy a goalkeeping coach, experience, decent service, just give me a call. Anyway, I didn't hear anything for three weeks. Absolutely zilch. Three weeks later, he said, it was as simple as he said, you fancy the job. And, you know, so you, you think, well, okay. Yeah, of course I do. He's in the Premier League. And, 
and and three years um, or four years in total with the Middlesbrough um, to see someone like Tony operate his method. Um, you know, it gets a lot of stick, but um, you know, we finished tenth in the Premier League with West Brom, um, and we finished uh, fifth and sixth with uh, sorry fifth and seventh with, with Middlesbrough. Um, he's a he's a top top manager, and that's why he got Premier League Manager of the Year on on the back of what he did at Crystal Palace. And and you know, and the, you know, you learn from people like Tony. If you don't, you're wasting your time. Um, in respect of your the second part of that question. Um, I love working with goalkeepers on a on a on a daily basis. I get a lot out of that, um, um, and I've, I've been really fortunate to work with like the Ben Foster and Dan Randolph and, and Declan Rudd, and they've been brilliant. And, and all the young ones underneath that. I, I think um, as an assistant coach, um, having been previously been a head coach, that helps me be assist, an assistant. You, you know, you you understand some of the emotion that a manager's going through. Um, you can maybe talk him through it. You know, um, there's just various experiences that you can bring into your role as a system. You can get close to the players, and 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 you're looking to to gauge how the feel is, what they're after. Can you can you help the environment? Um, but then going back, when I look back, the time that I really really enjoyed was being um, head coach for four years. Um, as stressful as it was in comparison, um, I, I think. Um, you know, you, you, you're working through every scenario, you're working through game days, you're working through signing plays, it keeps you busy 24-7. And whilst it can be quite wearing, it can also be really um, uh, quite rewarding when, when a team goes out and, and, and plays well and wins a game of football. You've had an incredible career as a player and as you've said, as a, as a head coach, an assistant head coach and obviously as a goalkeeping coach and even now at Preston, the team's yeah. doing really well, you're part of a really good staff there. I'm putting you on the spot with this question, but I think it's important to ask it. Will we ever see you man see you as a manager or head coach again one day, or are you very much now focused on the goalkeeping coaching? I honestly can't. I honestly cannot answer that. I honestly can't. I'm not. I'm not lying. I put myself up when I was out of work at Middlesbrough last summer. There was a couple of jobs that I fancied doing as head coach, and. I made it known. I'm not obviously going to divulge who those, those clubs were. They obviously, were, yeah. You know, but, um, but, you know, it's not likely to do that. But, um, so I obviously felt that way at that time. If I wasn't going to go back in as, um, as a, as a goalkeeping coach somewhere, then maybe that's my pathway to, to, um, extend my career in football. But, um, I, you know, I would, at first start, I would never do it at the expense of somebody else at a football club I was at. Um, I've got higher, uh, morals than that. And, um, and secondly, I really enjoy what I'm, I'm doing at the moment. And uh, the manager I'm working at is, uh, you know, I've talked about Tony and I was lucky to work with Alan Pardew as well at West Brom. But um, some of the stuff that I've, I've learned from, from Alex um, is up there with, with some of the best I've been, been with as a, as a manager and as a player. Um, you know, as I said at the start of the interview, Alex's detail is impeccable and, and his, um, the way he works and what how, what he wants to achieve, he's so driven. And at 38, we've already achieved what he has. Um, um, I, I hope he doesn't burn out because um, because he works so hard. But um, given opportunities, he'll be successful at any football club. Great answer, and I'd just like to finish with a round of quick fire questions. First one being, who are yeah. the best players you've played with? Sorry, say again. 
I'd just like to start now with around the quick fire questions. Who are the best players yeah. you've played with? Uh, Henrik and Lubo. <laughs> best answer I've had yet. Best players against? Oh my goodness. Um, looking back, Ryan Gibbs. What a player. What a player. Best manager and why? I, I work with. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd have to say Martin O'Neill because of the impact he had um, in such a short space of time and what he delivered in the space of 11 months. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in terms of, this is a question I actually find quite interesting when I ask a, a former professional, who would you say is the most underrated player you played with? Um, and I don't think he was underrated, but he probably doesn't get the mentions he deserves. I'd say Jackie McNamara. I'm not just saying that because he's recovering from from his illness and he's my mate, but um, I just think his versatility um, in that Celtic team was was amazing and. Um, like there was so much work that he got through that no one would have, you know, unless you were actually analysing him as an individual in that in a game of football, you wouldn't realise um, how good he was in a team unit. What would you say is the proudest moment of your career looking back? Probably, uh, no, definitely, not probably. Uh, definitely driving up to um, Parkhead and signing as a football player. Brilliant. The last and question. You know, that's bearing in mind, yeah. That's just bearing in mind, my, I, I, you know, I spoke, spoke previously about that, my, my football league debut. Absolutely. Like, but, you know, you driving up to Parkhead takes some beating. <laughs> Brilliant. The last question I've got for you is. If you had to pick a best eleven from the players you played with, who would be in it? <laughs> oh God! Um, I probably would. I pick myself in goal. <laughs> You've got to. Actually, I probably put my son in. I put my son in goal because he's better than I am anyway. Um, so I'll put my son in goal. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just going to say ages. I I'll, I will pick. I'm going to pick the team that stopped. 10, all right? And I know that's a real, that's a cop-out, but under pressure, some of the biggest pressure, and Rangers potentially might understand this next year, under pressure, they got a huge job done for a football club. Great answer. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the Football CFP podcast. All right, Callum, no, no worries, mate. Thank you. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave